0: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: I found myself actually leaving a job with the vice president of a company because she said, Look, my best friend's at uh, Vanity Fair Corporation, VF Corporation. She's about to run a whole division called Nautica Women's Sportswear. And she's a VP looking to build her team. Like, now this is the chance to get out of the box. And I left and I got to work directly for a vice president at a very young age, maybe two and a half years into my career, started traveling the world with her, eventually started reporting to a president two years after working for her, And found myself in the boardroom. So now I'm working directly for a president. I'm in my young 20s. I'm sitting across from the CFO, the CMO, and now I get it. I see the table. And it still wasn't enough.
2: (laughs) You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine legorio Chafkin. Today's episode, Do It All Backwards. Sometimes, the conventional approach is overrated. When my guest today started her company, she had plenty of corporate experience in the very industry she was starting in. But she had never started a company before. She'd never launched a brand or hired and managed people. And so... She did it her own way. She started creating a community of passionate fans before she even had a brand, before she had a real product. Her name is Michelle Cordero Grant, and her company, Lively, makes comfy bras and underwear with an eye toward activewear and inclusivity, too. Her story of growing her brand is unconventional in more ways than one. So I think you'll really enjoy this interview before Michelle started her own brand that happened to take on her former employer Victoria's Secret she was a wide-eyed kid who loved being a fly on the wall and was curious about everything
1: i was um born and raised in new smithville pennsylvania a very rural community amongst the cornfields and there was one uh, Indian family in my town and it was ours. So, you know, growing up, I was always a little awkward trying to find my footing, see where I fit in, etc. The word entrepreneurship never really was in my atmosphere, to be honest, but there were small signs like whenever I was at, you know, my friend's house or my neighbor's house, you would find me in the kitchen with the adults. Asking questions, asking tons and tons of questions. And you would find me, you know, starting to try and invent things and create things and build things and so forth. But I would say, as a child, I was curious, looking for a sense of belonging. And, you know, as I got older, I would find myself using my lunch money to get on a bus and go to New York City. So constantly searching for something.
2: What sort of questions would you ask the adults uh, in another family that wasn't your own?
1: you know how the moms would always sit at the kitchen in the kitchen and just chat I would like pick up on their
2: conversations and ask well what does that mean or why or you know and they're like go play go play <laughs> <laughs> yeah your parents were immigrants right is did that inform your your journey or your life or your your perceived path when you were younger
1: one thing Thousand percent, you know, my, my parents set the bar, right. They, they left, you know, their homes, their families, their siblings came here on their own, um, literally moved with a couple hundred dollars to our town. And we had the expectation of, or perception that they wanted us to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an investment banker. They set the stage for us to have a great education and follow through on one of these amazing career paths. And and so that's what my, my brother and my sister and I set out to do was do well in school and then become one of the three. Uh, Funny enough, none of us actually panned out that way. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, mom and dad. Um, But luckily the story, you know, as it unfolds, you'll see the path of that journey was purely perception um, and assumption and not reality in terms of what my parents wanted for me.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'd love for you to talk more about that. Uh, where where did you um, where did you go to college, and and what? How did those kind of perceptions start to start to crack, or start to um, I don't know become more more clear to you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wasn't super studious in high school. I just kind of got by and I I got decent grades, um, but it wasn't really until I got to college that things changed. I mean, I literally, I went to the University of Pittsburgh because it was a one-page application without an essay. (laughs) And it was as far across the state as I could go without leaving the state financially. So that's how I ended up there. Um, But once I got there, I was like, whoa, this is a totally different world. There's so much opportunity. I need to kick ass here. And I, I mean, I had straight A's all through college, except for one class, Sean Thomas gave me an A minus. And to this day, I'll never forget it because I would have a 4.0. But <laughs> with all of that said, when I graduated, you know, I went on to take my LSATs and I actually, um, you know, moved to New York City. And I told my parents, I said, look, I want to work in fashion just for two years while I go through the process of getting into law school but I just want to try this. And I promise I'll go to law school. And and that's what I did. You know, I moved to New York city. I got super lucky in terms of how I got my job there. Um, but when the time came, I took my LSATs, I actually got into law school, quit my job, moved, had a goodbye party in New York city with all my friends. And two weeks into law school, I called my dad and I said, dad, like, I don't, this isn't for me. You know, I'm yearning to go back to New York city. I actually called my old boss and she's like, I'll give you a promotion. So you have a reason to come back. And I was like, dad, you got to take the law school shirt off. I think I want to go back. And he goes, I just want you to be happy. And I'm like, what? (laughs) This whole time I've been trying to live this path and all they ever wanted for me to do is to find my passion and my definition of success.
2: So it was like a lifetime of expectations just shattered at the, in that moment for you.
1: <laughs> yes. I remember being outside of the dean's office and like jumping up and down because I was like, I'm just going to defer for a year, you know, just trying to buy myself time to do what I want, but eventually do what I thought they wanted. And I literally remember jumping up and down outside the dean's office after I had that conversation with my dad
2: and said, I'm going back. Wow. Um, so then you you went back to New York and you continued to kind of excel in in fashion. Was there an inkling that you wanted to do something different then or were you just strictly focused on your career and kind of climbing that ladder?
1: Yeah, I mean, in basic alignment with where I was as a child, I was always curious beyond what was in front of me. And so my first job, which was at Federated, which is the uh, parent company of Macy's and Bloomingdale's, et cetera, I was working in private label, you know, product development. And essentially that was, I was writing purchase orders all day long, but I would get in and I would get all of my work done and then try and be a fly on the wall in any meeting, in every meeting that I could be. Cause I was so curious about what everyone around the table did. Like what is marketing? What is finance? What is planning? Because it was never enough for me to be in these like specialized seats. I always wanted to see and do more. So I would say that's the first sign. I would say the second sign is I got itchy in every job, you know, after about 18 months of doing a role, I'm like, so what's next? Where am I going next? And I'm I'm sure I really annoyed my bosses, to be honest, because I probably came across as like entitled in some aspect, but really it was just like, push, push, push more, more, more. And um, I think what's interesting is I found myself actually leaving a job with the vice president of a company because she said look my best friends at uh, vanity fair corporation vf corporation she's about to run a whole division called nautica women's sportswear and she's a vp looking to build her team like now this is the chance to get out of the box and i left and i got to work directly for a vice president at a very young age maybe two and a half years into my career started traveling the world with her eventually started reporting to a president two years after working for her and found myself in the boardroom. So now I'm working directly for a president. I'm in my young twenties. I'm sitting across from the CFO, the CMO, and now I get it. I see the table, and it still wasn't enough.
2: <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna continue talking about your your career's trajectory and founding lively. Um, but let, and let's come back later to that education on the boardroom and that your ability to be a fly on the wall and learn leadership and management uh, before actually having to do it yourself. Um, So tell me then, you um, you went on to have a career um, that wasn't just in fashion, but was in lingerie, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was so fortunate that Victoria's Secret recruited
1: me. And I actually didn't get, you know, go until two years later. I still was, you know, trying to exercise this muscle of being in the, you know, boardroom. But I found my way to Victoria's Secret, and it was really for one reason. I just really wanted to be closer to the customer. I saw that all the strategies and the stories that we were creating were getting really muddied when it went through different distribution channels like department stores, etc. But when I got to Victoria's Secret, it was clear as day. What we created, what we built, the story we had to tell would show up on every website in every store. And so, yes, I was there for, for almost five years. Wow. And uh, and what was your biggest learning from being there? You know, I worked in merchandising. And when you're a merchant, you get a lot of exposure to Les Wexner. And Les Wexner, for all the things that he is, he is a merchant at heart. And he taught us how to build brands. And building a brand, he really articulated, is like building a movie. And, you know, the models are your actors and the copy is your is your script and where you shoot is the set. And you want to create a m- movie that, you know, inspires people and motivates them to feel a certain way. And so his story was Angel Fantasy and Push-Up. And that was clear. It didn't matter where you were in the world, what language you spoke. You see Victoria's Secret, we all think and see the same thing. And I would say that was the biggest learning, how to build a brand. And that really anchored where I wanted to go with Lively is. I had a story to tell. I had an impact and an emotion that I wanted people to feel.
2: This was a way that I could cut through. And with lively um what came first? I'm I'm wondering what was sort of the seed of the idea there. Was it in building the brand? Was it in creating a company or was it in a product? You know, where what was the the thing that drove you and and actually sort of launched the company to begin with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say it was all very strategic, Um, It wasn't at all. It was just circumstances that kept unfolding one after the other. And I would say the first is I got itchy at Victoria's Secret. I saw my leaders and my female bosses not living their best lives, kicking ass at work, like killing it in their careers, but not when it came to their significant others or with their children. So number one, that was like, ooh, that's going to be me. Can't do that. Like, how do I get to be good at both? Number two was this brand I was working for, we were still doing the same thing we were doing from 1998 1999, yet society had moved on so quickly with social media and, and what women wanted to feel and see and do had changed. And that was really led by the movement of athleisure. And so that was number two. And then number three was, well, there's this emergence of startups in New York City and creating a company is getting easier and easier. And so those three things fueled me to, you know, I joke, I say cross 14th Street and start to integrate into the startup world. And so I found myself at Thrillist Media Group working for a startup called Jack Threads, like took off my stilettos because I was clicking through the halls the first day of work, threw on some sneakers. Oh, the Soho
2: floors there are really... (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right?
1: And when I got there, I was like, yes, you can build and you can build quickly. And there are people everywhere that want to drive, impact, and create. And so Being there for three years led me to the idea that I can actually start a company. And then I thought, well, the industry that I know best is is bras. And I think it's actually really, really ripe for disruption, even though there was already six startups in the space. And then it, it became, and I have a story to tell. And so I think it was like those three things that literally over the course of three years, I'd love to tell people it took three weeks, but it was three years to build that confidence and that clarity.
2: Hmm. And and then nuts and bolts. Like, how did you do it? What was your What was your approach to funding the business and actually launching the brand, creating a brand identity? That's a big question because those are two very different ideas. Um. But but how did how did it kind of come to be? Again, right place, right time,
1: circumstances. Um. I was itchy again in my role <laughs> at Thrillist, and I started talking to people, and luckily met um someone that worked at Victoria's Secret, and she's like, "You have to meet." The CEO of Gelmart. And I'm like, okay, CEO of one of the largest manufacturers of intimate apparel for Walmart. And when I sat down with him, he's like, look, I see a tremendous opportunity in this space. I can't start a D2C, I've tried. Um, And I was like, awesome, because I think there's an opportunity in this space and I know how to build brand. And he's like, guess what? He's like, I will be your investor and your supplier. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. And it wasn't like, Michelle, you got this role. I had to actually like interview in a sense and meet him and show him that I deserve this opportunity. And I spent, you know, 48 hours reading business plans for dummies, basically. I said to my (laughs) husband, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Please take our one-year-old daughter and let me figure this out for a weekend. Wrote a business plan, showed back up, and he's like, yeah, we're doing this.
2: That's amazing. And what was your first hire?
1: It's actually interesting. So I, I left my job on a Friday and started Brand X on a Monday. Lively didn't even have a name. It was my 35th birthday that I got my funding. I walked out of Chase Bank with like a million five in a bank account I'm like what okay i guess i'm doing this now and the brand has one employee me um so i sat down and after like shaking and sweating i made a list of all the places that i felt the most vulnerable and when i did that i was like okay i know what i want to do creatively i'm not a designer i need a creative director and so my first hire quote unquote hire is sarah sullivan who's our creative director to this day she came on to freelance with me three days a week. And so we hung around for a couple of weeks and then it was a graphic designer that interned for me for four months. And it was just the three of us for the first five months. And then my first full-time hire, I felt confident enough to disrupt someone's life, right? And bring them on with a salary was um, Ali Alquiza, our director of brand. Wow, And, and then the brand came from there?
2: The brand came from there. We started August 3rd and we launched April 1st. That's amazing. So am I right? Uh, I, I have this memory that um, that you had sort of like this brand and and a brand ambassador program really early on, like maybe before you even had like products or, or a company. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, w- when I decided I wanted to start a company, I'm grounded
1: in statistics and data. Like I love data. And I remember reading a statistic that Two to three years into a startup, 60, 50 to 60 percent of the time they fail. And 10 years in, 90% of the time they fail. So in my mind, I was like, this is doomed to fail. Let me do everything backwards, right? And so there's so many things backwards about lively. We have one price, literally, for all bras. They're all $45. It doesn't matter. They doesn't they don't cost the same. And community was the same thing. I was like, actually, let's build the community before we sell our first product. And Instagram at the time, I'm talking about Instagram before Instagram stories even existed, like still semi-early, was a place that we could actually have women and humans help us decide the imagery, the taglines, etc. cetera. Um, and so we actually did. We built a community January, February of 2016 of 100 women, which was really hard. I'm not going to lie. And by March, we were able to move into starting to do some things viral and had a really explosive
2: launch because community came first. Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, Was there? I've heard and I've I've actually written stories about this that that in Facebook in particular, it is very difficult to advertise, especially women's intimate apparel, um, strictly due to body image standards on Facebook, um, especially internationally. They just you know they call it global, but has that been something or have there been related restrictions on or across social media that have been uh, difficult for you to navigate? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I actually get this question a lot and
1: we've had instances, but very, very few. And I think the reason why is because our community creates the majority of our content. And so it's all user-generated content. If you look at Lively and the sensibility and the vibe it's really about everyday life. And so whether they're wearing a bra or a swimsuit or a sports bra, they're in the same type of element and, and pose. They're not provocative. They're not like biting their lip or any of those things. <laughs> right. You know, it's a very different vibe that we wanted to create in this category. And I think because of that, Facebook and Instagram, are they, they don't really have a leg to stand on when they do try and stop and pause us. We're like, well, swimsuit or bra, you guess.
2: <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That's great. So that community helped you sort of uh, decide on products, decide on style. And how did it become important to the growth then um, once once you actually did have a product to sell? I mean, there was one very clear moment that
1: I still to this day, you know, ponder on how we hit lightning in a bottle. and. It was that we spent, you know, three months with our ambassadors and focus groups saying, what is the image? And we found this one image of this girl that we took on the Bowery on a fire escape wearing fur and then like randomly our geo bralette. And everyone in every group said, that's the image. The tagline was inspired by wild hearts and boss brains. Like that kept motivating women. And they're like, yeah, like crying is not something that we should be, you know ashamed of it shows our passion and the fire that we have as women and you combine that with business poof, things can explode so i share that because we created a refer a friend campaign off of what harry's did harry's in 2011 got 100,000 emails in 4 weeks and launched explosively and we said whoa they open sourced that code we're going to take that code thanks harry's and do the same thing and maybe we'll get like 20,000 emails over a month because we're not going to hit lightning. Because we took that image and that proven tagline, we emailed 250 people on a Friday with this refer a friend campaign technology. By the next morning, our goal was to have 1,000 a week. We had 1,000 that morning. We had 50,000 by 5 p.m., 70,000 by 8 p.m., 90,000 by that night. And then our servers literally started to explode. The next morning we had 133,000 emails and 300,000 sessions globally, which is when I say
2: lively launched. Wow. That would never have happened without the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was what was the thing you were offering? Was it a like was it just like a $10 discount or
1: No, it was so wild. It literally said meet lively inspired by wild hearts and boss brains, earn free product with every friend you get to sign up. No information on <laughs> how much the bra was. No information on what the bra even was. Like nothing. Or what they were going to get? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. And and it was like a point system. So you got points towards a product that you didn't even know how much it cost.
2: <laughs> wow fascinating i guess that curiosity like that's powerful right wanting to be first to know what a thing is first to know and
1: first to share and honestly we ship to every state in america within 45 days without paid media that's like the power of good content in my opinion
2: when we come back i'll talk with michelle about how she learned an important leadership lesson and what she did when another company wanted to buy hers But first, a quick break.
0: You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with workflow builder to take routine tasks off your plate no coding required grow your business in slack visit slack.com to get started
2: so you had a company then you had real sales what were the what were the biggest challenges you went through in those the early years the first say 2 years of having a real company and real orders to fill
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, there's the the glass half full problems or the high class problems, which is just meeting demand. Right. Luckily, we had a factory dedicated to us. And then there's just the mistakes that you make as a founder. You know, we put so much time and effort into picking the perfect components in our bras. And we actually pick this super soft, silky strap. We're like, oh, we're going to overpay for this strap. It's worth it. Everybody gets their bra and the strap starts to slip, which if you wear a bra, you know, is a big problem. And these moments, you think you're about to close the doors to your business. You're like, oh, great, we're going to go bankrupt. But you call everyone and you be human about it. And they're like, okay, no problem. Send me a better one. Or, you know, we relaunched our site right before Cyber Week. Google recrawls. You lose all your organic data. I didn't know that. Really big mistake. Like, company goes to zero for a week and you have to rebuild, right? So there's so many big mistakes. I think the biggest mistake that I made the first year was... I did not know how to delegate and like let go because you build something from inside your belly and your heart. And you don't realize that the most powerful thing as a founder is there's no I in team and you need to have a a crew to actually get it beyond you and I um luckily became pregnant with my second child 2 months after launching Lively not planned. Jack, I love you. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> but, you know, Running a company, raising capital, flying all over the world while pregnant. And then after, you know, having a newborn, I was forced to let go. And that was the best thing
2: that ever happened to Lively. And how many employees did you have at that point where you were able to say, okay, I I need to trust other people with these important matters?
1: Yeah, it wasn't that many. I mean, six. Oh, Wow. Yeah. I mean, we always have prided ourselves on less is more when it comes to humans. And we believe humans are our greatest asset. So choose wisely and really invest in them. And to this day, you know, our company is not as big as it should be given the size. Yeah. How many is it today? In like lively, quote unquote, corporate, I want to say there's like 50 of us sub 50. And then we have our four retail stores that are
2: all, you know, staffed really well as well. So you've never done your own fulfillment or your own, you know, packing your own, you know, yeah. Manufacturing. Right. Right. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: We outsource the things that are repetitive. Yeah.
1: And we keep
2: content and brand close to the heart. Yeah, absolutely. And so I love that you did kind of find that thing that you thought was missing in your corporate career, that ability to manage your family, manage your work life. Your son forced your hand at sort of delegating did you feel balanced at that point or did you feel like, oh, God, I have still so much work to do here?
1: Oh, I was terrible at balance the first couple of years. I think part of it is because I spent the 10 of my career prior to that in corporate and I felt like guilt if I wasn't at work. Um, I was also very just like OCD constantly. I mean, every order I would get an alert on my phone up until like a year ago. Wow! Every customer inquiry and ticket I would read at night. I was just so in it. And then I realized I actually um, had an experience with Tony Robbins in Fiji randomly with the crew from Shopify. And he looked at me and he was like, you know, Michelle, we had this one-on-one time and he's like, you're going to kill it when it comes to business. But this idea that you have for yourself around like a quote unquote balanced life and spending time with your kids, he's like, you're not doing it and you're not on the pathway to doing it. And here's how you do it. I was like, oh my God, please tell me how do I do this? This is what I want. He said, stop operating your company and own it. And I'm like, stop operating my company and own it. What does that mean? And he's like, create process, create efficiency, create teams around the things that you want to move forward so you can raise up and bring the company ahead and be ahead of the company versus being in it. And that, I swear, I came back and I landed and everything
2: changed. And Lively was on a completely different trajectory after that. I love that advice. And I love that he kind of spurred that thought process for you that allowed for the change to happen. Um, what did you do to put it in place? Did you just did you start to hire or did you start to do process inside your existing company?
1: Um, it's actually sounds silly, but I started to fire and put in process. Wow. Yeah, I was terrified at letting go of people. I'm like, look, we're we're here to inspire and build passion, purpose and confidence. And I was thinking about the company as a family. And what I realized is I need to think about the company as a sports team. A sports team has this mechanic of feeling like family, but you still got to move people around the team to eventually get the ball down the field. And I came back and I was like, all right, got to get rid of the people that are not helping the ball move down the field, bring in the right people and create process. And the greatest process that we created was actually around that ambassador program that had about a hundred people in it. I looked outside my office and I saw the interns carrying boxes and boxes of product to FedEx. I was like, huh, we send our products to our customers through a fulfillment center. Why don't we do that for our ambassadors and start to put that back into building the ambassador program? And literally three months later, we started acquiring a thousand ambassadors a month. Now we have
2: 150,000. Wow, that's incredible. And do you have, do you know the metrics for how many sales uh, or what percentage of sales those ambassadors actually drive? Yeah, yeah,
1: we do. It's not big. And people are always, uh, you know, kind of shocked by that because we have a customer file and we have an ambassador file. And there's two different purposes for each. Our ambassadors drive on paper, you know, 10%, et cetera, of revenue. But what they really do is they create brand stickiness, engagement, and content. We get two to 300 pieces of content a week from our brand ambassadors. Can you imagine how much value that content is? And then you think about the word of mouth these people, you know, share with the world. And that is what drives brand. Brand is driven by word of mouth and grassroots. Before social media, that's how we learned about stuff, right? You saw a billboard, you saw a television commercial, but it was, it was verbal and visual. And that
2: is what the ambassadors do. So, Michelle, I hear growth has actually been really good for Lively during the pandemic. Is is that true? And if so, how did you achieve that?
1: Yeah. Luckily, 2020 was bonkers for us, very, very strong for us. And I think it's attributed to agility and the flexibility of how we keep our brand. So what happened was, you know, obviously, the first thing we did after the shutdown was make sure everyone was safe and at home. And then the second thing we did was we asked our community, what do they need? And it was content around health and wellness at home, et cetera. And from a product perspective, it was loungewear and bralettes, not at all what we had planned, which was swimwear and fashion lace, et cetera. So we quickly called our factories, shifted into things that already existed in our business, but leaned into them. So we did not recreate or change the business. We leaned differently. Everything went to online, right? And so while we planned to open stores that year, we shifted all of that bandwidth all to e com including our store staff, which we didn't let go. We said, actually, we need help with customer service online and let's do virtual fittings and actually get even better at the online experience. And so my perspective on all of this is the world is a pendulum, right? And things usually shift and swing within the middle side to side, but the pandemic was whoosh, huge swing to online. But then knowing that that pendulum swing was gonna come back, we knew physical would be in our world eventually. And so I think always remembering that in business and in life, everything is a moment in time. So do not think short-sighted, you know, don't let go of your team if you don't have to. Don't, you know, make big, big swings, just lean differently. And so that's what we, we did. And now we're leaning back, right? Back to in, in person in some aspect, reopening stores, et cetera.
2: So you were only, as a company, a few years old when you were sort of forced to start to think about a big change, which would be an acquisition. What happened?
1: <laughs> so, um, you know, this is three years in, not even actually. Um, you know, I was in my office and the CEO of Gelmart mart who was my first investor, said, Michelle, you got to come to my office and sit on this meeting. And I would always, you know, he would say that and I would just kind of be like, oh, I'm busy. I really need to focus on Lively he's like, you want to come this time? I'm like, okay. So I go in and there's a banker in there and he's like, you know, meet so-and-so. She wants to let you know that someone wants to buy Lively. And I was like, we're not for sale. Um, And then 30 seconds later, I'm like, who is it? And, um, you know, it was very serendipitous. Wacol, um, who is a very, very well-known, incredible lingerie brand and manufacturer, had been watching us for about a year and a half and was looking to acquire a company. They said, look, we really love what Lively's doing. We want to have a conversation with you. My first instinct was no, but let's get to know each other and see. Do we see the world in the same way? And so we went to their office, uh, Yossi and I, who's, you know, my partner from Galmart. And when we got to the office, I had chills because I looked up and it's the building that I first met Yossi in four years prior. And I'm like, we're back at the same place. And he goes, yeah, this is bizarre. <laughs> so we sat down with them and, and really had a lovely conversation without numbers. That was step one.
2: What was it and how long of a process was it to get you from no to maybe to yes?
1: I would say it was a no in my mind for most of the actual process and so you know I live my life in beta and I say this to my team all the time you can't close doors until you've tried right so you got to live in beta and just see what could be and so I was like great at minimum I learn what M&A is all about and I learn about the process best case you know I figure out how to actually do this on my own when I'm ready and so as I started to go into the process of A very, very difficult thing without a banker representing me. Uh, It was like, all right, let's learn about an LOI, a letter of intent. Then we all of a sudden got through that step. And I'm like, whew, that went well. Let's go into diligence and then went through diligence. And I was like, well, that was hell. That went well. And then I found myself literally in Kyoto in Japan because Wacol is Japanese owned. And part of the process is the board has to officially sign off on me and the company. And I spent six hours being... I say grilled, but interviewed by the board with a translator. And I was like, whoa, that was tough, but that went well. And then I think the tipping point for me, as, as you can tell, I believe in signs and, and I'm very much about manifestation. I was walking through their museum of, and they have a museum that shows their history from, I want to say like the late 1940s, early 1950s to the present. So we walked through this museum from the present backwards. And when I got to the very end, which is the beginning of Cole, there was a logo on the wall that the first founder of Wacol drew. And it looked exactly like Lively's watermark. And they believe in beauty and balance. And that's what our watermark is. And in that moment, I called my husband. I was like, turns out we're selling this company. Wow. And did you already have a price tag attached to it at that point? At that point we did. And that was, you know, something I was negotiating the whole time, which is Mm -hmm. very, very difficult. And then the stock purchase agreement came out right before 4th of July. And I spent the entire 4th of July week Googling 99 pages of the stock purchase agreement because I wanted it done within three weeks. And the lawyer's like, impossible. I'm like, everything's possible. Let's make
2: this happen. And we did it. It was done. August, four years to the day that I got that investment. Wow. Amazing. Did you feel confident in the future of Lively? Did they make promises to you to keep the brand, keep you, you involved in operations and keep your team? How How was that aspect of it?
1: Yeah, that was a really, really big part of our early conversations, which is what you're buying is the culture of Lively. And so for this to go well, we have to keep that intact. Um, and And selfishly, I was like, I wasn't ready to sell Lively. And now, you know, I get to still run the company, which is, they've held up their elder end of the bargain 100%. We run it. We have our same culture. Their culture is very different from ours. And we actually accept the differences and find the synergies from within. But I would say, you know, it's not easy when you sell your company. It actually was very emotional. Like the day that we closed, I cried my eyes out. I called my sister in law. I'm like, I don't even know how I'm supposed to get up and go to these press interviews. I'm heartbroken but if you're really clear about what you want which i think i was so far i think i've had one or more the more serendipitous post acquisition experiences but it's still it's it's not it's not easy because things get real we've to follow like gap principles now
2: <laughs> but isn't it like easier on some level to just know that there's someone else that you can go to or ask a question right it's like yes. there's there's some sort of I don't know, maybe it's because I've never founded a company on my own, but I, I feel like there's a, there's that level of pressure that, that a founder has. Um, and then maybe that never goes away, that response, feeling of responsibility.
1: I would agree with that in that the fundraising was very, very taxing. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, you know, I would constantly look at our payroll and be like, that is the last thing that I ever want to cut. Um, Cause that's a pride piece, right? Like you never want to be the founder that hires and then fires, So that I think is the most comforting piece is that I know that the team is secure, right? And I also know that the brand is secure because, you know, Lively now has a big sister that can carry her, right? But I think the hardest thing is now as a founder, knowing that you need the brand more than the brand needs you. That's a tough mental journey.
2: That is fascinating. Let's go back and talk a little bit more about something we touched on earlier when you, you've you mentioned being a fly on the wall sort of multiple times. It seems like despite not maybe being the best student growing up, you were always just really searching for extra knowledge, looking um, just with curious eyes on every fresh situation and wanting to soak up everything from the kitchen table to any boardroom you could get into. So when you started Lively, did you actively feel like you were taking all of those experiences from? From Victoria's Secret, from being a buyer, from being in various boardrooms throughout your career and taking those in, um, did you know org structure? Did you know how to kind of create, you know, that, that uh, an actual organization um, and lead a meeting and all these basic business principles? Because you'd soaked that in, or, or was it just sort of like, did it just kind of all feed into your ability to learn further?
1: I think it all really supported the strength and structure of Lively. Every startup is chaos. It's just pure chaos. But I would say, you know, Lively was always an organized chaos. For example, you know, I accounted for every single dollar from the day Lively started. It didn't even have a name because I knew from being in corporate America, how important it was to track everything. Like in QuickBooks, I had everything tracked, even, you know, any money that I took out, et cetera. I would say number two is I had board meetings before I even had a board because I wanted to hold myself accountable. And I had these advisors and I would say, please let me have a board meeting quarterly just to keep myself on track. And I would also have a PL that was super easy and clean to understand because I knew one day I would have to present it, whether it was acquisition ipo or private equity or whatever it was because i wanted lively to be a global brand and so i think that's the number one thing that i think was like really really helpful for me to understand what it's like to have a big company and so i always treated it like a big company
2: i love that yeah you like built in accountability before there was anything to be accountable for totally totally
1: <laughs> and even when i fundraised i would not go for the valuations that were like I'm going to be a billion dollars tomorrow, I would go for the valuations that I would take if I were a public company with shareholders because I wanted to beat the street. And that's how I knew I was going to get the next round. And so it wasn't about the round that I was raising for. It was how do I secure the conversation for the next round
2: with the street? That's fantastic. So should you be forced to start again right now? How would your approach to entrepreneurship be different another time around?
1: Yeah. You know, the things that I take with me from Lively that work really well is focus and simplicity. The idea that Lively is one price and we're able to run a business with as many incredible humans as we do today, I would do again. But what I would do differently is I would hold myself accountable in a different way and actually let the humans do more early on, because I think it would actually create something that has even more impact to humans and would be less about me and more about what everyone else is seeing, feeling, and hearing. I think there's so much talent out there that isn't being harnessed that I would really strive for that. And then I would say the last thing, if I had this utopian company is... There's so much conversation around the importance of sustainability, which I 100% agree that we need to all be fully sustainable. There's not enough er, enough conversation about human wellness. And I think that is one thing the pandemic has really taught me is that above all, humans are the most important part of this. And it's the people are always like, what's your moat? The moat is the team. The moat is the culture and the team. And so I would want to create an environment that is even much more, you know, wellness-based, mentally balanced, and and gives people the ability to live a life of fulfillment.
2: What about funding? Do you, do you ever give advice to would-be founders these days? Uh, how do you think is healthiest to approach fundraising or funding your startup? I mean, my approach, and so I'm biased to say
1: that this is the good one, <laughs> was raise small and fast. And so I wouldn't take big, frothy rounds because you just don't know, right? And so you want to be set up for success. And so my strategy, which worked, uh, was I spent a lot of time bringing in the right investors for my first round. And then I would create you know, expectations again, like a, as if I was a public company, beat those expectations, and they would fight over pro rata. And I actually never brought in another investor through acquisition. They just kept backing me and wanting to be in next round. And so I would raise small and fast and small and fast because I knew the company was growing fast and the valuation would too. But the most important thing a founder needs is mind clarity. If you don't have clarity, you can't move the company forward. And clarity only comes from you have cash in the bank and you're performing at or above expectation. And you need those things to really see and move and drive.
2: But that clarity also comes from taking care of yourself, like you said, right? Like that, it's about mental health and about at least uh, not necessarily balance, but a level that you're comfortable with, right? Of <laughs> of busyness uh, and and work uh, and life. Do you have any any tips on how to how to maintain that as well um, in order to seek clarity and have that clarity?
1: You know, I think one of the other big aha's I had as an entrepreneur is it's actually not about everything you know and who you know. It's about your mind. And it's really, it's this, um, I use the word stamina, it's mental stamina to literally get up and just like get beat down and get back up. Um, So like my first mistake, bullet to the heart, I make way bigger, more expensive mistakes now and I get up much faster. And so I, I equate it to being an athlete You know, a marathon runner probably took them time to get to one mile, five miles, 10 miles. And over time, they're cruising through 26. That's how an entrepreneur should think about their mind, constantly nurturing it and building it and strengthening it so that you can be the marathon runner through all of this madness. To do that, I don't compromise sleep. I have to sleep minimum seven to eight hours. I also... I have endorphins every day. And so that's either 10 to 20 minutes of exercise or 45 minutes. And so, you know, Matthew McConaughey always says, break a sweat every day. We lived by that in my house (laughs) and know when to walk away. When you can't breathe, you have that knot in your throat. You want to cry, go for a walk,
2: see the world and you get perspective. Those are my hacks. I love it. Thank you so much, Michelle, for being here today. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. With Michelle, what really stuck with me was her consistent boldness to try to do things differently. She took on the intimates industry by taking a page from the New York City startup scene and built a brand and audience first before even launching her product. Her investor was also her supplier. And then, as she was still building the company, when an acquisition was proposed, she didn't shrug it off doing things backwards really paid off. You'll recall that Michelle said when she was starting out, she had a key number in her head. The fact that 90% of startups fail. She didn't ever let herself forget that in fact, what she was doing was unlikely to succeed. It was audacious by nature. And therefore she had to act with a certain boldness to try to defy the odds. That's precisely what she's done. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have any friends who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have any ideas to share with us, drop us a note at Inc.com. or you can let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who hasn't hung out with Tony Robbins in Fiji, but who has hung out on a fire escape on the Bowery, is Joshua Christensen. What I Know is also made with help from Blake Odom and editing by Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Lagorio Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.